Welcome to the Improv Discussion and Resources Podcast. My name is Chris Griswold. Today, my guest is Kareem Badra. Kareem is one of the owners of the Hideout Theater in Austin, Texas. And with his improv team, Parallelogram of Phonograph, he co-authored Do It Now, a book of essays on narrative improvisation. In 2020, his fiction podcast script, Curtains, won the Austin Film Festival script competition. Here's Kareem. So like, I just installed new risers in the theater that has been a, like an hour or a year and a half long project. Right. On and, off. and when I was originally planning it pre-pandemic, like the big logistical uh, hurdle was figuring out a weekend where we could not have shows. You know, like that was like the big thing. It's like, because we, we, yeah, we do right. shows 50 weeks, 50 weeks a year. Workhorses. So, uh... <laughs> Were you seven days a week? No, but classes... Classes and rehearsals would pick up the other. So we'd have shows Thursday through Sunday. And then uh, even on show nights, we'd have classes in some of the other spaces. But then the, the, other, the other nights of the week, there's almost always classes or rehearsals or something. How long has the theater been around? 21 years this past October. Holy pajamas. Mm-hmm. And wait, are you you're one of the founders of the theater? Not one of the founders. I'm one of the owners now. Have and I, I've been one of the owners for twelve years. Um, yeah, the short version is that basically the guy, the guy who started it uh, in two thousand nine, uh, he was basically he had some life stuff come up and wasn't wasn't around much at all when I started taking classes uh, in two thousand five. So the first few years I never met him, but uh, we basically started hearing rumblings that he didn't want to sign a lease renewal. Uh, in 2009, so we uh, started scheming to take over the business because we didn't want it to go away. <laughs> sure, it's always good to scheme. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and then how long has PGraph been around? 15 years. Wow, look at that. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's has it has it mostly been the same lineup? So basically, for the first 50 shows, there were some extra people, mm-hmm. some people uh, in right. addition to who's in it now. Right. extra people but uh, uh yeah it's, it's been just the four of us for i don't know 13 and a half years or something wow, and, and 750 plus shows well probably more yeah i've lost count <laughs> yeah that's a lot that's that's pretty impressive you don't see a lot of sustained uh existence yeah. for teams or shows really generally. i mean that was always the goal for me honestly it's like i um i love performing improv but i, I love being in a troupe better like that's that's the that's the uh, that's that's the real joy for me is being able to perform with people that we can read each other's minds, you know, for better or for worse. I think I think sometimes that that will get us into ruts uh, because we get comfortable. But uh, in general, it's like it's effortless performing with them. So, yeah. Well, and, 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 and this group has performed all over the world mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. you've you've done. Yeah. So where are some of the places that you've been excited to perform? I mean, I was just talking about this recently, so that's top of my mind. Uh, Barcelona, 2016, we headlined, I think it was 2016. Yes, it was. It was right before the election. Uh, we headlined uh, the, the Big If Barcelona Improv Festival, or Barcelona Improv Group uh, Improv Festival. Uh, that was incredible. Um, that, was, that was so cool. Uh, yeah, uh, and we love the UK. Uh, it, we're coming on 10 years since we did Edinburgh the whole month of the fringe and we we've made all these all of our contacts in the uk we met through edinburgh or or the places that that led us so we we used to go back we used to go to london or the uk uh, every couple of years and we're we're long long overdue it's been like four years i think which 
feels like a long time. In terms of what uh, PGraph performs, has it changed much over the years? In some ways it's changed. I think we always had the goal, I mean, we did, we always had the goal of, of doing narrative and doing it well. Um, I think our approach has maybe changed a little bit over the years. When we were young improvisers, uh, kind of with a, a, a bug up our ass about improv being respected as theater, we wanted our shows to be seamlessly, uh, we wanted them to, to, to seem like scripted theater. Like that was the, for, for a while, that was like the goal. It's like, it should be unrecognized or undistinguishable uh, from scripted theater, which is of course a ridiculous notion. Uh, uh, but uh, what that made us do though, was adopt a lot of scripted theater things like having better tech, having costumes, having, having show, you know, show concepts that run for, for a month or, or two months. Um, so it pushed us in different directions. I think uh, when we had more time and we weren't running theaters and, and businesses, uh, we developed a lot more shows in, in our troop youth. Uh, and that I, I don't think we, we don't do that as much anymore. Um, yeah, partially because we're a little lazier and partially just because we don't have the time. And we've done so much that like, we can now think about a show and kind of talk about it. And we know the pieces to grab from, from all of our, uh, all of our experience in history. So it's, it's become, it's become less of a concentrated practice that we used to do, I think. Uh, we still draw elements from scripted theater. And I say, I say it's from scripted theater only because you don't tend to see some of these elements as much in improvised theater. So we, we, I think we look to scripted theater for, for some of these um, skills or, or, Skills or themes or kind of general rhythms. I think rhythms is a good. Is a okay, good word. skills, themes, and rhythms. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. What sort of skills, themes, and rhythms are you are you grabbing? So skills would be like physicality and stage picture. Um, uh, being being very conscious of of how you're you're assembled as a as an ensemble on the stage and just changing that up constantly uh, or, or not constantly being aware of it and making it intentional. Uh, and not just being two talking heads standing or sitting on stage, being very aware of the space and using the space to its fullest, I think is, is a really good example of some of the scripted skills and, you know, think, it, sort of details like costuming, you know, that's that, that what back when we were doing, when we first started doing it, it felt more of a, a like a scripted theater thing. Rhythms. Um, I think about this a lot. I, I don't know that we're necessarily successful at this, but it's something that we, we, we'll periodically remind ourselves about and kind of try to hit uh improv is very much like a game of tennis or tends to be like a game of tennis one line uh response line response line response which makes total sense especially in the beginning of a show or the beginning of the scene when you're trying to establish the reality together and not have some one person you know kind of lay it all out but scripted theater is not like that at all i mean some of it is but in general scripted theater has different pacing different you know, lengths of, uh, of, of lines of dialogue, you know, that I, I kind of liken it to, uh, it's weird, uh, another performative uh, analogy or a performance analogy. I liken it to music in that, like, sometimes the guitarist takes a solo and there's a solo for a while, you know, in, in scripted theater, sometimes someone has a monologue because the, you know, the character has that moment. Uh, in fact, in scripted theater, usually that's, there's someone, like everyone is usually gonna have their moment. Um, and I think it's very easy to not do that in improv, but it can be amazing when you do. 
it can, it can, it can make, make it feel very different from a typical improv show. And I think that is probably a guiding principle for us is like, we're always trying to, we're always trying to shake it up. We don't want to ever feel like we're doing what's what we've always been doing. You were doing uh, uh, improv discussions earlier and uh, I was really enjoying uh, watching those. And you've got a book out. The four of you really work together well as a team in 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 discussing improv. It feels like, uh, yeah, I think that that's like all things with improv or working as a group or doing anything really. Uh, that didn't come easily. That's definitely something that we had to work on. And I, I again, I think that's something that as a troop we we are particularly good at, which is assessing what we've just done or what we're doing, what we tend to do, and figuring out how to make it a little better. Or to tweak it or to totally turn it on its head but uh so we like to teach together too which is not financially viable at all but when possible uh we, we love to be all be in the same room teaching like our we have a 12-hour narrative intensive that we usually do on a weekend uh that has gotten us to a lot of places or enabled us to travel to a lot of places and we we, we will all be in the room uh teaching all 12 hours now granted there'll be some exercises some some parts where we know that like Casey and Val are going to take point and Roy and I kind of hang back and once in a while chime in. But even learning how to do that uh, took practice. Like with the first narrative intensive, we were talking over each other and, you know, everyone felt the need to get their points out, even if the point was already made by the other three. You know, it's just like we all have this a very similar background in improv and a very similar base of experience. Uh, and we've been working together for so long that we have some of the same thoughts you know it's like we have the same perspective so it took a, it took a little bit of a, while, a, a little bit of, of doing these classes to get used to like okay Roy just said a thing I don't need to chime in to echo that that won't contribute to anything mm -hmm. other than me feeling like I've now said something um, but yeah after years and years of teaching together it's um, pretty second nature now so I hadn't really heard of the Hideout Theater before the pandemic, and then when the pandemic hit, I heard about the Hideout Theater a lot. <laughs> yeah, we we jumped in. <laughs> yeah, you really have. What um what precipitated that? What uh led to this? It is a place of prominence in in the worldwide improv scene. We always wanted to be a place of prominence, not out of ego, but just because we, we like what we do. And, and, and honestly, w with my troop traveling so much and two of the owners of the hideout being in PGRAF, it's like we would kind of be ambassadors as we would leave and go places. And then we would have a summer intensive and suddenly we had people coming from London and from France yeah. and from Canada. You know, so that kind of naturally, uh, Kind of built on itself but uh with with regards to the virtual stuff it's kind of stubbornness uh honestly it's when everything started shutting down and not that i want to dwell too much on all of that but when, people, when things started shutting down it was literally like a two we had two hours notice um you know we didn't pgraph we've had a weekly show for forever and we perform weekly you know give or take we, you know, someone might have a vacation or something, but we basically performed, have performed weekly for 13 and a half years, or maybe it's 14 years, I've, I've lost track, and we had canceled the show, and, and then Casey texted everyone with like two hours notice, she's like, hey, let's, let's do a virtual show tonight, and this is, I don't know that anyone else was doing virtual improv at that point, and uh, we basically just, Roy went off and figured out the tech, and uh, we just said, all right, let's do it, we put up a post, and we did the show, and and then, you know, those first few months, 
maybe first few weeks uh, we were doing <laughs> P-Graph was doing three or four shows a week plus a Q&A and the hideout just like transitioned since Roy and I had figured out the tech side of it we just transitioned uh, some of the hideout shows that we thought would work to to being virtual and have just continued ever since you know with ebbs and flows as uh, all of us in the entire world have, our tolerance of, of virtual shows has has gone up and down given the week or the yes month, but yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And has everything been on Zoom? Or have you done Restream? Um, or have you done any of the other stuff? Almost exclusively Zoom. We've done a few... Yeah, the hideout, we, we've done a few corporate gigs for companies that... Uh, I think we did one for Microsoft, or maybe it was Google. We did, we did one for a tech company that had their own service. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, you're not using Zoom for that. Like, all right. right. But for the mo- va- the vast majority have been on Zoom. And I think that was just a uh, path of least resistance. Uh, Roy looked into the tech and he, he's mm-hmm. like, this seems to work. And it, you know, we were able to work around any quirks it had. And it seemed broadly available and, and easy to get people uh, up to speed. So yeah, it's mostly been Zoom. You said you worked around the quirks. What sort of things did you have to adapt to? Initially, if you talked over each other, like one person's voice would would sort of clip the other ones, and, mm-hmm. and it, it would just be kind of it kind of became a mess. So you had to learn to shut up if someone else was speaking, which is a great improv skill, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, or you had to learn to sort of telegraph when your sentence was going to end, so that someone else could could then respond or pick it up, uh, because there's also that bit of a lag. So it's like the 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 quicker you are to jump on top of the end of someone's sentence. Um, the smoother it all feels. And I think getting to work with my troupe uh, made it possible for, for me to do virtual improv. I don't know that I would have been super thrilled about just doing it with not random people, but with people that I didn't sh- share a brain with, you know, mm-hmm. took us a few shows to get, to get used to it. But um, it, eventually it became not second nature, but like, okay, it's a good, this is a good, uh, this is a good way of keeping up the practice. I don't even know if anyone's watching. I kind of don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, it truly is for us, <laughs> but I, you know, we didn't know how long it was going to last. And I didn't want to be like, well, we'll come back in two months and then do shows like, no, it, it, we don't know what's going to happen. So let's, let's keep the muscle moving uh, just to, uh, yeah, just to stay connected. And I think I, that's been true just generally of the, of the hideout is just trying to keep people connected who, who are able to and, and want to. I, I appreciate that. I mean, one thing that has come up a lot on this podcast is talking about community and how important it is. And mm-hmm. that's clear that that's one of Hideout's priorities. Yeah, it, it always has been. I mean, that's what drew us to the theater. Well, improv drew us to the theater. It's what drew us to saving the theater and, and, and taking it over as a business. It's mm-hmm. always been a big part. And, and yeah, part of it is just that um, we'd seen or heard about how other improv scenes developed and developed stupid rivalries. And, and yes, uh, <laughs> we never wanted that in Austin. Um, you know, I, I had a, the P-Graph had a weekly show at Coltown theater for mm-hmm. years before Roy and I and Jessica took over the hideout. And for the first year that we owned the hideout theater, we P-Graph still had a weekly show at Coltown uh, <laughs> because we just wanted to keep the, that sort of bridge we wanted to keep people, um, yeah, we wanted to, wanted to keep the broader community connected as much as we could. I really appreciate that because, yeah, you always see these improv scenes where, you know, somebody isn't getting enough uh, 
literally getting not get, getting enough attention or they're not getting enough stage yeah. time they're not getting what they want so they split off and they form a second theater and then there's bad blood and the community doesn't get stronger until those ties re you know reform yeah. and the thing is we always encourage people i mean kind of for me it's a little bit out of uh <laughs> uh sadistic hubris i'm like anyone who wants to open a theater please go right ahead like mm -hmm. i i would love it like and that's not not only sarcastic but it's like you know I, we truly do like if yeah. someone is inspired to do it, by all means, go do it. And also, the thing is, and we learned this a long time ago, and partially I had to do it for my own sanity, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, if we, as, as the hideout, if we think we're competing with Cold Town or Fallout or whoever that opens in Austin, if we think we're competing for the same 50 people to fill our houses, then we've all lost. We're all a bunch of assholes. You know, like, yeah. come on, we're in a city of 1.1, 1.3 million people. Like, we can each have 50 butts in seats watching shows at the same time. Yeah. And it's fine. You know, it's like, it's okay. Well, and having multiple theaters makes it a little bit more obvious to the uninitiated that there's a variety of improv. And you can I, find what you're looking for. Maybe. I don't know if that's true because you use the word uninitiated. I used to think that too. It's like, oh, people are going to take classes at this place because they know they're sort of UCB style or turns out people take classes that people take classes from the theater that is, that is offering classes on the day and time that works for them. Yeah. <laughs> I think after about six months or after like feeling like they they're in they're in it then they might start to be like oh i understand this style and maybe i like that but it seems like people just do what's convenient uh at first and then if they get really bit by the improv bug they, they kind of branch out i think i'm thinking more in terms of audiences i think if they realize that there's multiple options then there's maybe they'll find the kind of improv that appeals to them you know what that's I mean? probably true yeah, yeah. I think I think if someone is is watching critically, uh, and, and is like is considers themselves like a comedy fan or more than just like I don't know, I went to this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're absolutely right because because the kind of shows the Hideout does is, is is definitely different than some of the other theaters, or it, it used to be more different. I think, uh, yeah, because we 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 will do those costumed sort of themed uh, narrative shows that mm -hmm. are you know big, e easy to advertise and easy for audience to wrap their head around that's interesting why do you say easy to advertise because you can take a photo of it you can say what it is you can say what it is without the word improv in it right just yeah. like you know i mean and we learned this uh 15 years ago maybe 16 years ago uh we had a meeting with um i think it was the arts editor uh of our sort of our local independence uh sort of community press uh paper and he basically said like i need i need something to advertise i need need you to give me information about what the show is and the more we were talking about it i kind of crystallized this idea like if you can't take a photo of it it's not a show yep or it's not one that you can really hope to draw in non-improvisers and that's always been our goal is to get non-improvisers in the theater watching shows otherwise it's a big pyramid scheme yes uh, I agree so so th that was kind of the rule early on is if you can't take a photo of it it's not a show which means you need to be thinking about you need to be thinking about the visuals and you'd be thinking about what that is how you're presenting it to the audience what you're telling them the fact that it's improvised should and could be a selling point mm -hmm. um but i i always felt that i didn't want to be in a band and then tell tell my potential audience come see music right <laughs> like, what exactly is it? well we exactly. play music cool what 
is it reggae? Is it heavy metal? Is it jazz? Is it, you know, like what you need to give me some idea. Um, and that doesn't always mean for us that we're necessarily doing, you know, improvised blank, like improvised, uh, you know, known quantity, no known, known thing. We do that. We probably, do, we used to do that a lot more and we definitely still do it, but that, that we're not limited to doing that, but um, that sure does help with building in, um, building in an audience or, or at least letting you know how to, how to communicate what you're doing to people. <laughs> no, I agree with you. It's like saying, come to my puppet show. It's like, what does that mean? That doesn't, that's yeah. the, that's the method, but what's the, what's the product? Yeah. What, what am I going to get? God, puppet show. Yeah, exactly. But you know, then there's the argument, there's old Rosowski uh, quote uh, that uh, what the, the, the process product of improv improvisation is the process and vice versa. I mean, there, there is the, the, the fact that yes, from a certain perspective, improv is the is the both the product and the process, and that in itself is very exciting. But try putting that on a poster, right? You're like, I think once people know, they know. Um, but it's funny you saying like puppetry. This is totally a tangent. It's like, yeah, I can see like a kids puppet show, and also when I was in Edinburgh for a month, all I saw on the buses was something an advertisement for something called puppetry of the penis 3D. Right. So there's a it's a wide range of puppets. That's very different. Very, very different. Show. And that's the thing. Very different audiences, you know. Very different audiences. Yeah. I think that's important to know who your audience is when you're advertising, mm -hmm. you know. Or at least have an idea. You you might not always know. You might get it wrong, but you gotta you have to have something in mind to to target them. You know. And and I don't I don't I don't I'm not an expert on, on advertising improv. Honestly, all of this is word of mouth mostly. You know, we don't have all of all these small theaters, we don't have the, the, the funds and the resources to advertise in a way that's going to truly make a difference. Like, I think we do it so we don't feel like we're doing nothing, but it's like, you know, spending $700 a month on a radio ad on NPR, you know, I don't know how many people it's bringing in, but I mean, it, may, it does make us feel like we're putting an effort in, but it's all word of mouth. Someone sees a show and they like it and they eventually they remember to tell their friends and hopefully they come back. Yeah. So, uh, so how did you find your way to improv? Um, I was in Austin, where I still am. I had recently graduated college. I was desperate for a creative outlet. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was in New York on vacation. Uh, I'm from New York and I was, I was visiting the city. And I went to UCB to see a show, not knowing what improv was at all, having what, what literally no this? idea. This was, I saw the show in 2004. So this is 2004. Um, and I, I know it was The Swarm. I still remember scenes from that show. That's my, that's uh, my, it's my first improv show. My first long form show that I ever saw was The Swarm. That's great. The Swarm? Really? Yeah. Swarm. yeah. Yep. So I saw, I saw them at the original UCB and, and I didn't know what to expect or what I was getting into. I just knew that I, when I was in high school, I watched the Upright Citizens Brigade show and I somehow knew they had a theater. I was like, oh, I'll go see a show. Didn't know what improv was. Uh, saw the show. And as, literally as soon as the lights came up at, as the show was over, I turned to the person I was with and the, the words, I have to do this, came out of my mouth. And I didn't even know what I wanted. I didn't, I didn't want to be a performer. I was just like, I don't know what that was that I just saw on stage, but I, I, I need to learn that thing, whatever that is. And then I, you know, I found classes in Austin when I came home. And and it, I got bit bad, and I, I was I just jumped in with both feet, and it was it was all I did, it was all I thought about, it was, yeah, uh, and, and yeah, the rest I guess is uh, 
one one step after the other from that. <laughs> and I wasn't a performer before that. I, I never had aspirations of being a performer. I still like don't like attention. I I, I yeah, I was never a performer uh, in in childhood or in high school. It was not my bag at all. Um, Improv is what brought that out of you. And then improv brought that out of me. I think it. I think I may have always had an inkling, and I just wasn't sure how to how to uh, dip my toes into it. And so improv became. Yeah, it's very strange. Improv became a really good. Obviously, improv became a very good outlet. But then, because of how I was studying and dedicating myself to improv and and, and trying to learn and read theater and watch theater and grab from theater, I slowly mm-hmm. gravitated towards also doing scripted theater and on camera work and. So I, yeah, so I, I, last four or five years, I've been, I've also been doing scripted work um, because I enjoy it and it's a different muscle, but none of that would happen had I not uh, seen that show at UCP, which probably if I saw now, I would not like very much. I don't know. But I, at the time, it's interesting. Is is there a moment that you, is there a moment that you remember in particular from that show? Because for me, it's Billy Merritt pretending to play a clarinet. (laughs) <laughs> it's just this one moment uh they did a when i saw them they did a um this was in 1999 they they did a um oh, wow. yeah they did a mono scene where you know the people just kept shifting in and i think billy merritt might have stayed in a lot of the time as a as a, a like a marching band instructor and that but it was just the movement yeah. of it it just blew my mind i'd been doing short form i had no idea that you could accomplish something like this they did one yeah. thing where they were uh, going to a they they were going to a seat in a restaurant that was through all these back alleys and ladders and all the stuff and it was several it was like three people doing follow the leader and that yeah, just yeah, blew yeah. my mind. You know, I I I can't remember anything that mm-hmm. would make sense if I tried to say it out loud. I just have little I have little glimpses of of, of moments and and uh, facial expressions and just you know right yeah it, it it made such an impact on me though at the time like I mean immediate. Not even like I left thinking about that show forever, but it was just, it, it, it was improv. I, the Swarm was great, but it was just the first improv show I saw. And I was like, what the hell is this? What yeah. is this alchemy? <laughs> so now uh, you're, you're with the hideout. And is there mm-hmm. anything, does, you, does the hideout draw from that UCB thread at all? Or I know that you've got some Johnstone in there because I know that you're running. So... What does the hideout draw from? Our roots, our yeah, our, our our roots and our foundation are Johnstone. I think early, early on when I when I was so the hideout, hideout opened in '99. I started doing classes in 2005, 2005 to 2000, maybe 10 or so, maybe a little earlier. It or rather 1999 to 2010 or so. It was very, very Johnstone based almost purely Johnstone based. And then as more people started moving to Austin, more improvisers started moving to Austin. We got some, some Chicago contingent. We got some people from New York. Right. We, and, and as I and, and other hideout people started traveling and, and learning from more people, we just started stealing from everyone. We're yeah. still, there's still the core of our classes, the core of our philosophy, especially early on uh, in, in getting people to become improvisers uh is is all johnstone like a lot of those skills and the and the philosophies are definitely johnstone but then we build towards doing na- full narratives which johnstone kind of hates oh like, really like why would it yeah i mean you said like why would anyone want to watch the same thing for an hour like i don't know why would you read a book or watch a movie <laughs> right. he, he's a i mean i respect him he's such a contrary right. which is like what do you mean why would like you've written plays that what 
mm-hmm. are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we are equal opportunity thieves uh, and, and kind of take a little bit from everywhere. Um, but Johnstone, I'd say it's about 50 to 75% as like the foundation. And, but I, we definitely don't teach the game the way UCB teaches game. Well, we, we are familiar enough with the concept to, to kind of talk about it and have people play around with it, but we're not, we, don't, we don't consider ourselves like a UCB theater for sure. Sure, sure, sure. I know there's a lot of, it's, it's really interesting. You go to any city and there's someone that's like, we're like Second City, we're like IO, we're like UCB, we're like Johnstone, you know, everybody's got their own threads. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think a big part of Austin, Austin's improv development is also that, you know, there, there was a big festival, is a big festival called the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival, which would bring people from all over and then they would teach workshops and then that would spread. So it's like, you know, we just steal from everyone. I have, I have no problem thieving. From, I'll, I'll cite my sources if I can remember. But yeah, I try to steal from everything I see, whether it's improv or, or you know, scripted theater or reading a book, whatever. If it speaks to me, I want to see if I can do something with it. So do you personally, um, are you personally teaching a lot? No, I am not right now. Um, I kind of go in and out of, of teaching, uh, at least mm-hmm. teaching regular classes with the hideout, uh, only because uh, yeah, I'm so busy running the theater and doing like the business of running the theater. That's, that's my day job is, is running that business. Um, and then, uh, yeah, between doing shows at night or, or, or rehearsals for either improv or scripted work. I, I don't have a ton of time to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught a little bit over, over the last year uh, just for one-off specialty classes, but I, I haven't done like, you know, a six or eight week uh, regular level class in a while. So you're taking care of the day-to-day? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, my role is the, the general manager of the hideout. In addition to being a theater, we're also a, uh, we have a coffee house in, in the same building. Smart. Um, because we're right downtown, so it just kind of makes sense. But yeah, so I also oversee that. We, there's a manager of that, but I, I, yeah, I'm doing all the, a lot of the boring uh, admin uh, stuff that keeps like the theater open. Which bore, bore me a little bit. <laughs> Over the last year, it's been finding grants and filling out yeah. applications for money. And and uh, you know, when there was a hotel being built right next to us, I, it was weeks of going to city council meetings and and trying to advocate for small businesses and the hideout specifically. It's you know figuring out insurance. It's ordering risers. It's finding people to con- to put the risers together. It's it's figuring out how to change the coffee house to be completely uh, pickup orders and COVID safe when the when when the pandemic started. It, yeah, is the hideout a nonprofit? We are not. We are not a nonprofit. We are, in theory, for profit. <laughs> we were we were for profit until this last year, in which case, uh, yeah, we stopped being profitable. profitable. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. sure. So what, what shows do you perform in? Are you, are you only with P-Graph at this moment? Uh, right now, yeah. Uh, virtual shows, yeah. Um, typically, I will be in, when, you know, when the Hideout's doing in-person shows, I'll, we do Maestro, which is a Johnstone short form mm-hmm. format. I'll play that about once a month, maybe once every month and a half, just because I, I love it. Uh, and then I'll, I'm in the Big Bash, which is our sort of hybrid um, hybrid short form, long form kind of um, crowd pleaser show. Um, and I'll do that and I'll do uh, P-Graph. So yeah, I'll do one or 
Mm-hmm. And a typical week, I'll do one or two shows a week, probably. So you do Maestro. That's pretty. Uh, that's yeah. a that's a great format. It's a great format. I think the Hideout is the. I think we've had the longest running Maestro period, because uh, from what I from what I can tell, Johnstone invented it in '96. The Hideout opened in '99 and has been doing it weekly ever since. So we we might be close to like the world experts on Maestro for having done it so much. So for people that haven't seen Maestro, how would you describe it to them? Uh, Maestro is a uh, competitive improv show with uh, about tw- 12 players and one or two directors. The directors set up scenes and, and help actively direct the scenes uh, if needed. And then the audience scores the scenes. Uh, and at the end of the show, someone has the most points. And yeah. They win. Well, is it just straight and competition? What we like to say to our players is it is not a competition. It's a show about a competition. Oh, that's interesting. What's the distinction? So, well, the d- distinction is if you go into it thinking it's competition, it means you want to win. And there's nothing worse for improv than to actually think the people you're on stage with are people you are competing with. <laughs> but you have to, uh, you know, it's it's like you have to main you have to you have to want to win, but also want everyone else to win which is a sentence I've never said before, but makes total sense for Maestro. And I need to remember that because <laughs> that's what makes it work is, is you, you, can't, you can't make the audience think you don't care about winning because then they're like, oh, it, it's fake. No one cares. Now I'm not invested. It, it's like wrestling. It's, mm-hmm. It really is like that's the, uh, the Johnstone sort of aesthetic on his short form is like, let's get people, let's get the audience as into theater as they are into wrestling, which is just as fake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so yeah it's uh it's it's a show about a competition and uh as the show progresses typically in a night it gets better because the people with lower scores drop off and you you're, you're left with more time to do some sort of, sort of longer uh longer scenes that maybe have a little more focus or uh have different tender moments but yeah it's 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 a great format because it, it gives you lots of room for good shape of show and and you know the old Johnstone sort of um, philosophy of the scene we should set up next should just be whatever we didn't see before. So let's mm-hmm. just you know make every scene as different as the one that came right before it. Yes, that's such a hard muscle for improvisers to develop. Is just yeah. how do I get away from what I'm already doing? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's not about making a huge left turn and and kind of throwing the audience for loop, but it's like, if we just had a scene that's really manic and crazy, maybe let's follow it up with a scene that's very quiet just to change the energy. And again, it's like energy, rhythm, pace. Um, Yeah, Maestro and directing Maestro and doing tech for Maestro early on in my improv career was was really good for kind of seeing the different different energies that you you can have on stage and, and learning how to change it up. And, and recognize it when you're on stage, like, okay, we've been doing a lot of shouting. Let's, let's be chill for a second. <laughs> more shouting. Yeah, uh, more shouting, please. <laughs> I noticed that you've had a, 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 quite a few international performers, a lot of Canadians in your maestros and other yeah. shows. Yeah, we have. Um, the, the virtual thing has been great in that regard. Uh, we've you know, gotten to expand our sort of international community. We, we're kind of not quite sister theaters, but 
We've got a lot of people for Im improv comedy Bangalore in India who've been <laughs> playing with us. You have no idea how many times uh, improv comedy Bangalore has been mentioned on this podcast. I know it's come up a lot because I mean I think they're they're they're. It seems to me like I don't know the exact history of their group, but it seems to me they're all between like two and five years old as far as improv years, mm -hmm. and they're so they're in that like sweet spot of just wanting. I mean, they're getting up at five. They were anyway getting up at like mm -hmm. five in the morning. Right. performing our maestro i'm like jesus christ <laughs> i'm uh i'm teaching a uh, i'm teaching a class through cavalia plays um oh, yeah. in india and they are taking the class at 9 p.m on saturday and sunday nights and that's amazing right. to me they love it they and, amazing dedication yeah, yeah they, so, they, so much they, dedication yeah. so hungry and, and i love it i love that uh yeah that's so nice to see how are you working international performers into your into your projects the easiest way for the hideout to do that is through maestro which has been the show that has just been going this whole time through throughout the pandemic ebbs and flows because uh, it's so easy to onboard people to to like get them used to the show or, or comfortable with it and, it and it's directed so so there's a bit of a not safety net but there's a there's there's someone there kind of like you know refereeing and, and, and keeping people in bounds uh, and then honestly what happens is like people play in, in maestro and then other people see them or did scenes with them and like them and you know improvisers were just like we love everyone we did a scene together let's do a show now I love you when are you visiting you know it's just like <laughs> uh, so it kind of spreads from there maestro is a real for us is a really good way to integrate other performers from different cities different different theaters like because we do it every week, even in person. If there's an improviser who swings through town, uh, we're like, come play Maestro. Yeah, we already have 12 people you know, scheduled this week, but be, be player 13. Come on, come on, come on. I remember once early on in my days improvising. Uh, <laughs> so the hideout used to have a, a weekly jam and uh, it would be on a Tuesday, I believe. And, and Maestro was on Saturday. One day in the Tuesday jam, two, two guys walk in and they're doing all this crazy physicality. And we're like, what? It, like, do you have an improv background? Like, no, no, we're not improvisers. Like, what, what, how, what is happening? They're like, oh, we're clowns. Ringling Brothers is in town. <laughs> the circus is in town. And, and this sounded like fun. So they're like, what? You're clowns? Do you have a show Saturday night? No, you don't. Come play Maestro. And we That's had great. clowns in Maestro. And, you know, they basically weren't improvisers, but they were, they, they'd studied with uh, in the Ringling Brothers Clown Circus. So it's like, mm -hmm. this is great. So I think that that spirit of community and 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 just sort of you know getting different voices uh, is something that Maestro helps us do. So we, so it's definitely happened over the last year. I mean, it's fantastic. Do you have any goalposts in mind for what it's going to take for you to open up? We set a few weeks or months ago. I don't remember. We basically had a rough sketch for how we would open up. Or, or, and the milestones were based on the city of Austin's COVID stages, because that was that seemed like the best. I can't trust the state of Texas, so we were going to trust the city mm -hmm. of Austin, because the state of Texas is like, yeah, I'm at it. I'm like, mm -hmm. um, and I think it was that at stage three, we'd start doing classes outside in person. At stage two, we'll do indoor in-person classes. And stage one, we'll do shows. And we're still kind of on that path, I think. I'm starting to suspect that stage one will not be a thing responsible cities announce for a very, very long time. Mm. So uh, as, as people continue to get vaccinated, we're, we're kind of 
checking in with ourselves and, and constantly reading the news and, you know, being uh, casual experts in, in, in virology. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I think it'll be in the next month or month and a half, though I did just read a headline today. This is the part that's so stressful. The next two weeks are the real test. Like, great. So we're not even out of the woods. Sweet. So I keep saying we'd like to open in the next month, month and a half, uh, but I am fully prepared mentally and uh, emotionally to find out that, no, nah, never mind. We're all screwed. Uh, locking doors. <laughs> hide your wife, hide your kids. You know? <laughs> yeah, as soon as the CDC announced that people didn't need to wear masks if they were vaccinated, I jumped on that. And it was too soon. It was too soon to was offer it too a soon? class. Yeah, you mentioned yeah. That. I, that. For us, that was a little glimmer of hope. We're like, okay, we're. I think we're proceeding right, but let's still like, mm-hmm. we're you know we're still we're still a little skittish. We're 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 poking our head out of the out of the the rabbit hole for the first time. <laughs> we're just like, is it okay? And I, you know, I I, I just don't want to feel rushed. Honestly, like I said, we we do things so much. Well, I, yeah, our typical schedule is very hectic at the hideout, and it's go, 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 go. And I think uh, we'd like to open on our own time <laughs> and do And it'll probably be like a couple shows a week, and then we'll see how it feels, and then it'll expand. And uh, yeah, I am personally itching to get back on stage, and I don't really remember what it's like, but I'm pretty sure I enjoyed it. So I'd like to do that again. <laughs> I'd like to do that again. <laughs> Well, I, I would say this is the time where we share our recommendations, our resources with the audience. I didn't want to think too long and hard about it. I've got two suggestions. One is very specific and one is probably couldn't be any more vague. Um, so I'm a narrative improviser primarily, or that's, that's my love. That's what I really love doing. And I, for anyone interested in narrative, storytelling in general, story structure, but improvising narrative, uh, I think early on is very hard. And and sometimes it's hard to really know what a good story looks like. Uh, The first like four to six seasons of The Simpsons are such tight little 22 minute stories, 22 to 24 minute stories where nothing is wasted, nothing is introduced that isn't used later. Mm -hmm. It's... Yeah, once I started doing improv and really looking at story and thinking about it and trying to internalize it, I went back and watched some old Simpsons and man, so tight. Really good examples of, and especially if you're an improv troupe, it's like we have a 25 minute slot. Like, I mean, not that I expect anyone to write or, or rather improvise something as uh, tight as a scripted, very well scripted show, but as far as seeing like a tight little story. But have a have a strong economy of meaning where if you introduce something into the show, it must matter yeah. at some point. Nothing is wasted. Everything right. is used. Uh, that you know, later on that wasn't true, of course. But yeah, you know, that's <laughs> sure. a great show. But yeah. but yeah, those first four or six seasons are just so uh, yeah, efficient. That's great. Yeah. And what's your uh, what's your other recommendation? <laughs> that you so have? a really vague uh, recommendation is uh, go do something else. Or do something else you love. Find something else you love and take a deep dive into it. Uh, whether it's uh, something performance related or, uh, or, or baseball, watching or playing baseball or cooking or whatever. Because what I've started to realize, and this might just be my brain, I don't think it is. What I've realized is anything studied with dedication starts to look or feel very similar. Uh, in that... 
in that I think you get you get hung up on details or you get hung up on all the rules and then you realize that it's it, all of it kind of doesn't matter and uh, there you know there's like two or three general basic basic principles that everything hangs on and and kind of points back to and I think if you study anything with dedication you start you start to see that that sort of similar pattern it might just be the the pattern of of human learning the way like you just get overwhelmed with everything and then suddenly like oh no I'm I'm very zen about this I get it there's just like these two things I need to worry about and everything else falls into place it's all part of the one big hole you know I like that. I, it's as you acquire these tools, you start looking for new ways to apply them. Um, and uh, I've always told people to, you know, you need to bring what you love to improv and bring improv to what yeah. you love, but you got to have yeah. some other uh, passions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think especially for improvisers, it's important to, it's important to figure out if there's another type of performance or creativity that, that interests you. Because mm -hmm. I think too often, it's, I don't know if this is a bad thing. I mean, this is like a very democratic thing, but to, I think too often improv is the first creative outlet for a lot of our students. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they want to filter, they want to smash everything into that improv box. And then mm -hmm. it's, it's like not necessarily what has to be done. Mm -hmm. like wouldn't it be great if we did a really highly conceptual show where we know all the characters and we know the basic beats and like sounds like you want to write a thing why don't mm -hmm. you go write a thing you know like like yeah that does sound fun i don't think what you want to do is best served with improv mm -hmm. uh I, mean, I invite you to try but it sounds like you have a very specific idea of how every moment should go and that's called writing mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is fine just you know you don't need to put it in the improv box <laughs> Well, as for me, uh, this is inspired by us talking about um, varying things up over the course of a show, changing, yeah. changing things up. There's a card game called Set that I highly recommend to anyone, especially if you're curious about learning patterns. Um, in Set, uh, every card has one of three different shapes. Uh, in the, there might be one of the shape, two, three, three different colors. There's three different patterns that can be on that. And what you're looking for is you lay out a you lay out a, a a grid of twelve cards, and you're trying to find three cards that are, that are all similar or they're all match in the same way or all different mm -hmm. in the same way. So oh, you wow. can have three squiggly lines, two squiggly lines, and one squiggly line. That works because they're all squiggly lines, but they're three different numbers. And yeah. I find it to be really really useful for pattern recognition. And especially for uh, just especially for the sort of what I call third person improv, where you're looking at edits and you're looking at the sort of structural aspects of the show, it really helps you to go, okay, this is what we have. What feels different from this? And it really hones those skills. So that's what I'm recommending people try is go out and find a, think, a deck of stuff. Is that an older game? I feel like I've mm -hmm. played that, but not, not a long time ago. I, yes. My mother is, is a retired school teacher, so I grew up with a lot of educational games, certainly. <laughs> and set is one that finds its way into classrooms. But it's also just really fun, especially if you've got a bunch of just uh, dorky friends around who want to yeah. play a fun card game. Then it's a really good, it's a really good time. Nice. Well, Very cool. I want to thank you for coming on this podcast. Uh, yeah. It was so great to have you. Great conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, that's great. Appreciate it. So that's my conversation with Kareem Badra. Great news. The Hideout Theater has reopened. PGRAF's first show back at the theater is this Thursday, July 22nd. 
Remember, we want your participation. Send emails and voice memos to chris at thunderboltcomedy.com, and they might end up on the show. Improv Discussion and Resources, as always, is produced by me, Chris Griswold, for Thunderbolt Comedy. Virtual and in-person classes in improv and sketch comedy at thunderboltcomedy.com. Discuss this episode in the Facebook group and Discord. Links for these and everything we discussed are in the show notes. Our theme music is Earth's Assault on the Central AI by TEDx, courtesy of TEDx. You can find more of their music at tedx.bandcamp.com. See you next time on Improv Discussion and Resources. We're trying to shake it up.